Once upon a time, there was a young shepherd, a boy after God's own heart. He went from tending sheep to leading armies, from wearing a sword to wearing a crown. He was one of history's greatest kings who committed one of history's most infamous murders. His rise built a kingdom. His fall would tear it apart. Well, welcome to Seacoast Church. My name is Ernest Smith. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the Long Point campus. And I want to thank all of you that are joining us uh, at an off-site location. Maybe you're here in the Charleston area, or maybe at our Manning campus or Columbia campus, or maybe you're joining us online. We want to thank you for joining us this weekend as well. I'm excited to be up here with you uh, to, to be continuing this series. If you've been tracking with us for a while, for the last eight or nine weeks, a series called Rise and Fall. And what we're doing is we're looking at uh, uh, the, the story and the life of King David, who's regarded as one of the greatest kings, if not the greatest king that Israel has ever had. And now let's just be honest. I mean, up until this point, the, the pastors who have gotten to preach on King David, it's, it's been pretty easy. I mean, he's been, you know, he's a good guy. He's a great king. He's a great warrior, a great follower. I mean, it hasn't been too hard for him. And then here comes my weekend and they're like, you get the greatest thing of all. And that's David's fall. David's worst mistake ever. And thanks guys. Thanks for the opportunity to preach on this message. But I firmly believe that God has something to say to us this weekend. I believe that God wants to speak to us mightily and that we won't walk out of here unchanged as long as we listen to his word and listen to the story of David's greatest fall and probably his greatest regret. Have you ever done something that you've regretted in your life? I mean, maybe it was something that you did when you were a child or maybe it was just a couple days ago. Something that when you look back on, you think, I can't believe I did that right there. As I thought of that question, I thought of the multiple times that I've regretted decisions in my life. I thought when I was six or seven years old and my sister slammed a garage door in my face and I got so mad that I decided to punch through a window on the garage door and uh, th thinking I would show her. And then I looked at my hand, it's bloody, and now I've got scars to prove that I was the only one that really regretted that decision. I thought about the time when I was 16 years old and uh, I got my first car. And I thought, no one's going to tell me how to drive. I'll drive any way that I want to. And within six months, I had multiple tickets, hit a parked car, a tree, a mailbox, and everyone's personal favorite, I ran into a Dollar Tree store. <laughs> yep. I totaled three cars in a matter of six months, and I'm personally responsible for the rising insurance rates for males 16 years old. <laughs> I regretted all of those decisions, except for one, the Dollar Tree store kind of has a cool story, so I kind of like that one. Or I thought about the times where I've tweeted something or put something on Facebook, and I was like, oh, probably should not have done that. You know what I'm talking about? I know some of y'all have done that because I've seen some of your comments and I thought, ooh, shouldn't have said that one. And you rush to the computer and you press delete hoping someone in cyber world doesn't see what you've just thought and somehow it came out your fingertips. And I thought that many times when I've had a conversation and I've tried to win an argument and try to prove my point, and that's just led to me saying things that I've regretted that's caused pain and hurt and a lot of tears in those who I'm closest to. There's been a lot of things in my life that I've done, I look back on, I've regretted those decisions. How about you? You ever done something that you've regretted? I mean, maybe it was something that only you experienced the consequences of. Maybe it was something that you did that affected those who were closest to you. Maybe it was something that you didn't do that caused damage to your family. Or maybe it's something that you've done that has caused damage to those who are following you. 
Anybody can attest? Anybody done something that you've regretted in life? Yeah, about a fourth of us. That's great. We're going to teach on lying this weekend. Um, honesty, truthfulness. We all have. We've all been there. That we've done something that we look back on. We may at the time thought it was, that it was right or maybe it felt right to do that thing. But looking back on, we see that it was a major mistake. There's no more true statement that characterizes King David than that right there. He was a great man. And yet, some mistakes in his life led to the greatest fall that he had ever seen. Now, let's just think about it. Up until this point, he's done what seems to be everything right. I mean, he listened to God in fighting the Philistine and killing Goliath. He was willing to be patient in God's timing to become king. When he became king, the people cheered and they celebrated him. He honored and respected King Saul when probably King Saul didn't deserve it. He was willing to listen to God, as we saw last week, even when David's plans were to do one thing. He listened and obeyed God's plans to do something else. I mean, great, David, at this point, he's loved by all. He's respected by many nations. And he's used mightily by the hand of God. He's a great king, a great warrior, a great worshiper. That is until the fall of David with Bathsheba. Now, besides Adam and Eve, there's probably no greater fall in humanity. It's the story that has had parody in Hollywood the story that fathers tell their sons to warn them of the dangers of women. And it's a story that, that pastors have preached a million sermons. I mean, we've all heard the story of David and Bathsheba. It's the one that's deleted from little kids' Bibles, probably for good reason. And then it's reinserted in the teen Bible, probably also for good reason. And we've heard it a thousand times, but have we heard the warnings that we can find within the story? Do we understand what God ultimately is trying to warn us from? You see, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Paul says that if you think you're good to go, if you think you're okay, be careful, because you're probably going to fall. Take heed. Listen to the warnings of those who have fallen before you. Listen to the warnings of your own failures. Because if you don't take heed, we will ultimately fall in our lives. And I think the story of David and Bathsheba gives us some great warnings, some great truths that if we apply to our lives, if we investigate where we are personally, we won't end up where David was. So let me give you four, four truths from the story of David and Bathsheba that hopefully we can apply to our own lives. Truth number one, falls usually happen over time. Falls usually happen over time. In case you're wondering what happened with David and Bathsheba, let's just read a, a very small portion of the story. It comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1-4. through 4. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to it. If not, we have it on your note sheets, and it'll be up on the screen as well. Again, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1-4. through 4. It says this, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. There it is. There's the greatest fall that David has ever committed in his life, or at least that and a few other decisions that relate to this. And it's only four short verses. 
I mean, a very short time frame, we see David committing the greatest fall that he could have ever imagined. But don't be deceived. Don't think that David's fall happened when he was on a little staycation while his men were off expanding the kingdom. You see, verses 1 through 4 were the culmination of many different decisions that David had made in his life years prior. And when we look in God's word, we can see six chapters earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we see where David's poor decisions began and ultimately led to the fall with Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 5.13, we read, And after he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. You see, before this statement, David had just been made king. And, and then he decided to take his army to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was being occupied at that time by the Jebusites. And he wanted to make that city his city, the city of the, the, that would be the capital of all of Israel. And so he defeated the, the, the Jebusites. And you can imagine David being on cloud nine at this point. I mean, everything was going right for him. He had won many different battle, uh, victories on the, on the battlefield. He was at the height of his public admiration. The kingdom was growing. The people were uh, uh, growing closer in their relationship with God. Everything was great. And I think maybe this is a warning that we can heed when everything seems to be going good in our lives. May we take heed lest we fall. It's usually when everything's going great in our lives that we lose our trust and our faith in God and we put our trust in ourselves. Well, this is definitely true for David. You see, in that verse, 2 Samuel 5.13, we see that David took more wives and it was a direct violation of God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 17, God says, Hey, Israel, when you have your kingdom and you set up a king, here's a few things that the king can do and a few things the king can't do. And let me give you three things that the king cannot do. These are God's words. He says, there's only three that you can't do, king. Number one, don't increase in horses or allow the people to go back to Egypt to get horses. That sounds a little strange, but that's just God's way of saying, hey, don't rely on material things and don't allow the people to go back to the place that I gave them freedom from. The second thing he says don't do is don't increase in wives. And the third thing, don't increase in silver and gold. Now, David knows these rules. He knows these regulations. His advisors around him know these as well. And he does great at number one. He doesn't increase in horses and he doesn't allow the people to go back to Egypt to get horses. He also does good at number three. He doesn't increase in silver and gold. You see, God doesn't say as long as you do 67% of his word, then you're okay. He says, we've got to be obedient to all of what God says. And David failed greatly in that number two. He began increasing in wives, 2 Samuel 5.13 tells us. And that began the poor choices of David disobeying God's word that led to another poor choice and then another and then another, eventually leading to the fall with Bathsheba. You see, David's great fall didn't happen one day. It wasn't one poor choice. It wasn't as if he didn't get much sleep the night before, then he had a bad day at work, had a fight with one of his wives, and then decided to do that thing with Bathsheba. You see, for David, it started with one poor choice to disobey God's word. That led to another, and then another, and then another. Now, Bathsheba is not completely in the clear with this either. I mean, she made a few poor choices of her own. Her husband was off at war. She was probably lonely. She wanted affection. She decides to take a bath, which was a holy thing. She was purifying herself, and that was a holy thing, but she did it in the most inconvenient place possible. I mean, she knew where David's uh, palace was. She knew that people could see her from where he stood, and yet she ch still chose that time and that place to take her bath. But let's not be deceived. David was definitely the aggressor, and it was his many poor choices that led to this great fall. For David, he took more than one wife which led to his great passion uh, for more intimacy. For David, he, 
He stayed at home when he should have been off fighting a war, which led to just too much time on his hands. For David, he looked and then he stared, which led to lustful thoughts in his heart. For David, he asked about her, which just allowed his actions to begin what was really already happening in his heart. You see, David's great fall didn't happen in the bedroom. It happened years before when David decided to violate God's word. You know, the same is true for us. A great fall in our lives doesn't happen by one poor decision, by one bad day. The falls in our life happen when we choose to violate God's word, which creates one poor choice and another and then another. It's the man who decides to violate Matthew 5, 27 and 28, which states, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's that man who thinks that if I just look at pictures, if I just have these thoughts, no one will know. No one will be hurt. My wife won't know. That other woman doesn't know. No one will be damaged. But it's that poor decision to violate God's word that leads to another and another, leading to ultimate destruction in his life. It's the woman who neglects Ephesians 2.10, which states that we are God's workmanship. You are God's masterpiece. And instead of believing that, she begins to believe lies about her her self-worth and who she is and her appearance, ultimately uh, leading to depression in her life, causing a lot of poor choices. It's the parent who violates Deuteronomy chapter 6, which teaches us as parents to not only know God's word, but to be willing to teach our kids God's word. It's the parent who violates that that causes confusion and disbelief in their child's life, creating a fractured family. You know, any of us can fall. Any of us can violate God's word, and we do on a regular basis. And it's that violation that leads to another poor choice, and then another, and then another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's one of the great theologians, says this. Inside of all of us lays the slumbering inclination toward desire. When that desire is awoken, it turns into a flame. And in that moment, we forget God. We could have been living for God one moment, but the next God is unheard of and unseen. Only desire can be seen. Any of us can fall. Take heed. If you think you're good right now, know that you can fall. And it takes one violation of God's word that can lead to another and then another. Truth number one about falls is they happen over time. Truth number two is that falls happen when you lack accountability. They happen when you lack accountability. You know, reviewing this story, I don't see a whole lot of people holding David accountable. There is that one little servant who tries his best to, to tell David, don't do it, man. Verse three, we read, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, this may seem like a normal comment, but when you look at the Bible and anytime it, talk, anytime it talks about genealogy, it usually doesn't include the person's spouse. I mean, it usually would say something like, this is Ernest, the, the strikingly handsome young man who is the son of Richard. I mean, I might add a little bit in there, but you know, I mean, that's pretty much what it would say about me. It wouldn't say that this is Ernest, the, the, the son of Richard and the husband of Sarah. It usually doesn't add spouses into the mix. So for the servant to say that this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the, the wife of Uriah, he's, it's like he knows his master. It's like he knows the king and his passions, his lust, his downfalls. He sees all the women. He sees all the concubines, all the wives. He knows where David's at. And for him to say it like this, it's almost like he's saying, hey, David, I just want to remind you, she's married. You know that. You know her. She lives pretty close to you. Her husband serves in your army. He's a pretty good guy. You know him. You know who she is. You shouldn't even be asking these questions. She's married. But I mean, the reality is how successful is he really going to be? 
I mean, that would be like you or I, you know, picking up our phone and deciding to call the White House. Hey, President Obama, I just want to let you know that the decision you're about to make in, in this in a few days, it's going to be a bad decision. And you probably shouldn't do it. And President Obama being like, oh, thank you, Ernest, the handsomely, you know, strikingly handsome young man, the, the son of Richard. I'm going to listen to you. That would never happen. I wouldn't even get him on my phone. So how successful is the servant going to be with King David? Not very successful. You see, if David really wants accountability in his life, he'll set up men in his life to do just that. But if he has done this at all, all those men are off at war, fighting the battles, expanding the kingdom, while David's sitting at home watching an X-rated version of Army Wives. <clears throat> Some of you will get that in a couple days. You see, there's no one there to hold David accountable. And this is one of the most powerful truths about falls, is that if you don't have accountability, you will fall. For David, he was 50 years old or older. He had been king for two decades. He was a great musician, a great songwriter. He was a great king. He was God's anointed. Who's going to stand up against David? Who's going to tell him he's wrong, that he shouldn't be doing something? No one, unless David has set people up to do that. You know, the same is true in our lives. Even though none of us are probably king over a nation, the reality is many of us live our lives without any accountability. We think we're okay. I'll never do that thing. I know the stats. I know there's a lot of adultery happening. I know this. I know that. Whatever the case may be, I'll never do that. And so we don't set up accountability in our lives. Take heed because we will fall. For those of us that don't have accountability, let me just give you a couple suggestions. Number one, get in a life group. A life group is a great place to get around people who are just living life kind of the same journey that you are. And you can share your struggles, you can share your concerns and, and the battles that you're facing. And the people that trust that you can trust and that care for you and that will hold you accountable. Suggestion two, get a mentor. A mentor is someone who's probably a little bit older than you and definitely is further down the path than you, has already worked the journey, walked the journey that you're walking on right now. And it's someone that you can trust and listen to. But let me just encourage you with this. You can get one mentor and then another and then another and then another. You can, have, you can be in one life group and then join another and then another and then another and never find accountability. And you'll probably blame that on everybody else and their inability to keep you accountable. But probably the issue lies with you. You see, if we truly want accountability in our lives, we will seek it out. And then we must be vulnerable enough to admit what we're doing, what's happening, our thoughts, our actions with a few close people. Now, I'm not saying for you to come up on stage and tell the whole church what you're dealing with. I'm just simply telling you to get a few people in your life that will hold you accountable. A buddy of mine called me a, a little while back and he said, Ernest, I don't want to struggle uh, with impurity with my fiance. I want to be pure in our relationship. I said, okay, I'll keep you accountable, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to text me every single morning exactly and tell me exactly what you did the night before. Now, I mean, it seems a little, you know, a, a little too much. I mean, to text somebody every single morning and tell them exactly what you did the night before with your fiance, that's a lot, man. But I thought if he was going to do it, if he was serious, he would do it and he would get the accountability that he wanted. Since that time, we have texted each other every single day. And since that time, they've stayed completely pure in their relationship. You see, that's what accountability does for you. It gives you someone that's going to hold your feet to the fire, as Pastor Michael Morris would say. It gives you someone that's going to encourage you, that's going to challenge you to be a better husband, a better wife, 
a better father, a better mother, a better child, a better student, ultimately a better Christ follower. And it also gives you someone there that when you do fall, it's someone that's going to encourage you. It's going to pray for you. It's going to lift you back up. So a couple of truths about falls is falls usually happen over time. They usually happen when no one's holding us accountable. And the third truth is that falls have consequences. Falls have consequences. Here we are at the Eternal Father of the Sea, a church located on the Old Navy base in North Charleston. This church was built in 1942 when the base began to grow rapidly because of the needs of World War II. It was in this building that many servicemen gave their lives to Christ. It was within these walls where many individuals sought peace and comfort in the eternal God. And it was behind these doors where people worshiped the God of creation. But that was many years ago. In fact, the last service that was recorded in this building was in September of 2004. And as you can tell, there hasn't been much done with the place since that time. So what happened? How did a place that was once vibrant, growing, in the center of base life get to a point where the city's trying to decide if they should just destroy it or if it would be worth the money it would take to restore this place. Well, in researching this building, I couldn't find just one decision that had been made that led to the downfall of this church. In fact, it was pretty easy to tell that many decisions had been made that led to the closing of these doors. The downsizing of our military in the 90s, North Charleston Navy Base was chosen as one of the bases to close. The chaplains that were conducting services here were reassigned in 95. Those who decided to take over the place and conduct services in 98 either decided that it wasn't financially responsible for them to continue services or that they decided to move their church elsewhere and close their doors in 2004. Even the filming of The Notebook here in 2003 couldn't keep these doors open. It's pretty easy to tell that many decisions led to the closing of this house of God. Now I'm not saying that any of this, these decisions were good or bad. I'm just simply trying to make the point that every decision has a consequence. And when our fall is great, our consequences are great as well. So back to David's story. He experiences one of the greatest falls in history, and it's pretty easy to see the consequences of that fall. A one-night stand with Bathsheba results in consequence one. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. So what is he going to do now? Well, he's got a plan to bring back Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, from the war so that he'll sleep with her, resolving all the issues. What he didn't count on was Uriah's loyalty to his men and to the nation of Israel. Uriah only wants to go back and fight the battle. So David sends him back with a letter to Joab, his commander, telling him to put Uriah at the front of the battle so that Uriah eventually will be killed. And he is. Consequence two. Consequence three, a child is born nine months later. And as a result of David's fall, that child dies. Consequence four, David's family is in turmoil. With very little leadership in the home, one of David's sons rapes his own sister, who then is killed by his brother, who then revolts against David and the nation of Israel. Consequence five, the nation of Israel begins to slip away from the relationship with God. They begin worshiping idols and other gods, and they break their covenant with God, and eventually that leads them into captivity and destruction. You see, David's sins didn't affect him just that one night. His sins destroyed a family, killed a husband, a child, ruined a nation, and tarnished his legacy forever. David was hoping that his sins were more private, but the reality is our sins always become public, and we'll find us out.
every fall can expect a consequence. Whether that fall leads to the recognition of the news or seemingly goes unnoticed in our lives, every fall will have a consequence. Romans 6.23 states, For the wages of sin is death. The Bible makes it very clear that at least one of the consequences, one of the results of our fall, of our rebellion against God, is death. And that word death is all-encompassing. It's a physical death, a relational death, and a spiritual death. But many times we don't stop and think that our actions will lead to death in our own lives, our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and even those that we're leading. Many times the many decisions that we make and the lack of accountability lead us to a place where we don't care about the consequences that we will eventually face. But whether those consequences happen today or happen in five years, every decision has consequences and every fall leads to consequences. And those consequences can destroy our lives, our relationship with others, our relationship with God, and eventually we'll look at our own lives, much like we look at this building, as something that is run down and destroyed, wondering if it can ever be restored again. The passage used to discuss the consequences of our falls was Romans 6.23. It states, for the wages of sin is death. But the good news is that's not the end of that verse. Because there's more. There's hope. There's redemption. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God provides so much more hope even when we've fallen. He provides restoration even when we sin. And he provides the fourth truth of falls, is that, and that's falls can be redeemed. Falls can be redeemed. This is one of the most powerful truths about falls is that although our falls, although our sins, the, the consequence is death, death physically, death relationally, death spiritually, that ultimately God loves us so much that he wants to redeem us. And he did so with David as well. I mean, if there's anyone that should be outside of God's grace, it's David. I mean, he was God's man. He was over all of God's people. He was king of the Jews at that time. I mean, he was doing great things, doing mighty things, and then he commits some of the greatest sins ever commits adultery, kills a man, lies about it. For months, he covers it up. If there's anyone that should be outside of God's grace, it's him. You see, God doesn't look at a man's sins to determine whether or not they should be redeemed. He simply looks at who he is, and he is God. He is creator of our lives. He's sustainer of our lives. He's father, and he loves us. And it's his love and his grace that we can hold on to in the midst of a fall, and in the aftermath of a fall. You see, we know the story of David and what he's done. A few months later, Nathan comes into the picture, and Nathan is one of David's friends, and he's also a prophet of God. And he says, David, we know what you've done. God knows what you've done. And in that moment, David repents, and he asks God for forgiveness. And the greatest thing is that God not only forgives him, but we can tell that God continues the promises that he's made to David about his family remaining on the, on the throne of the kingdom. And we read, when we read all throughout 1 Kings and 2 Kings, we read certain statements like found in 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. When the author is speaking of King Abijah, he writes, He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his forefather had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. 
This is such a powerful passage because it kind of teaches us two truths about uh, when after the aftermath of falls. The first is that um, uh, even though God will forgive us, there's still consequences. I mean, for God to insert this years after David had died into the scriptures, it's like God saying, hey, just want to remind you, I've forgiven David and I've continued my promise to David and his family. But just want to remind you that there are consequences. David still did wrong. And when the Bible uses, in the case of Uriah the Hittite, he uses that in the, in the situation with David and Bathsheba. But it's almost like he's saying, hey, just remember that Uriah got the short end of the stick. I mean, he was the one whose wife cheated on him and then eventually was killed because he was loyal to the nation. The interesting part of that is, is that Uriah, a non-Jew, is more righteous than David, who's the king of Jews. Just an interesting point. The second truth that we find in that passage is that God's grace and God's love is there for us even when we've fallen. I mean, God loved David so much and he kept his promises to him. He could have just said, David, no more. You've messed up. You made a promise to me that you were going to follow me and obey all my commands. I made a promise to you that I was going to keep your family on the throne of the kingdom forever. And David, since you disobeyed me, we're done. I'm choosing someone else to do this whole thing with. But he doesn't. God not only forgives David, but he keeps his promises to him. It's one of the greatest truths about who God is. And I think for us, many of us who have fallen, maybe we're in the midst of falls, a fall right now, or maybe we're just committing small little sins that we think are okay, but eventually will lead to a great destruction. God wants to simply say to us today, you can be redeemed. No matter where you are, no matter what you've been struggling with, there is redemption. But in order to be redeemed, we must simply seek forgiveness. In order for you and I to be redeemed, we must seek forgiveness. You see, that's what David did. He sought after God's forgiveness. And seeking forgiveness is a process. It involves really three steps. The first step is to admit what you've done, is to admit the fall, to confess the sin. David, even though it had been months, David finally and eventually said, God, this is what I've done. I've messed up. Please forgive me. And God did. And this is where some of us are this weekend. And it's difficult for us to confess what we've done for some of us. It's difficult to say, yep, I'm admitting this sin in my life. But know this, that everyone has sinned in this place. We've all messed up. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We just simply need to confess it. In 1 John 1, 8 and 9, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The first step in seeking forgiveness is to admit it, to admit what you've done, to confess your sins. And for some of us, that starts today with God, to confessing our sins to him and him alone. For others of us, we've been confessing our sins to God. But maybe the step for you is to confess it to someone else. It's to find someone who's closest to you that loves you no matter what you've done and to say, hey, I've messed up in this area. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a close friend, a mentor, your life group. But it's someone that you can trust and say, hey, I've messed up in this area. I just wanted you to know. James 5.16 says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confession is huge in seeking forgiveness. We confess to God so that we can be forgiven and we confess to others according to this verse so that we can be healed. So the first step in seeking forgiveness is to admit it, to confess what we've, we've done. The second step in seeking forgiveness is to ask for it. You can't receive forgiveness unless you ask for it. You've got to go before the Lord and say, God, this is what I've done. Please forgive me. And for some of us, that's where we are this weekend. 
And it's been difficult for us for us to ask God for forgiveness. And I can guarantee you this, that you can, you know, get into all the self-help philosophy books and, you know, you can learn all this stuff on the internet, how to better yourself. But the reality is there's nothing that will break the bondage of sin than Jesus Christ. And we must come to him for that forgiveness, for that breaking of the bondage. And for some of us, that's a struggle because we're just not quite sure about this whole God thing. We're not sure about Jesus and all of that. And God's simply telling you today, come to me, see who I am. And then watch God break the bondage of sin in your life through your confession and through your asking God to forgive you. And the third step in seeking forgiveness is to simply move on. Don't do it anymore. You see, we can admit it and we can confess it, but if we keep doing it over and over and over, then have we really truly repented of what we're doing? God simply says, move on. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God says, hey, listen, I'm not going to give you anything more than what you can handle. Because I'm your God. And I'm going to give you the strength that you need to overcome that thing. And then when you're tempted, know this, he will always provide a way out. He will always give you a way out of that temptation. It's up to us of whether or not we're going to take it. You see, you don't have to fall anymore. You don't have to keep living in the same sin over and over and over. Will you make mistakes? Yes. Will you sin? Yes. But then it's a matter of admitting that, asking God for forgiveness, and then doing it no more. And some of us are there today where we just simply need to understand that God wants to give us the strength to overcome the sin that we've been battling with. God wants to redeem you. He wants to redeem me. And it simply just takes us asking, admitting, and then moving on. You see, David is one of the greatest men that we find in the Bible. I mean, he was a great king, a great musician, a great warrior, a great worshiper. But David, over a course of time, making a lot of small, poor choices, and then because he had a lack of accountability, creates one of the greatest falls that humanity's ever known. But the same God that David worshipped is the same God that we worship. And he's in the business of redeeming that which has fallen. And God wants to redeem us today. We just simply must admit what we've done, confess it, ask God for forgiveness, and then move on. And then watch him redeem that which has fallen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a God of redemption. Thank you, Father, that you love us so much that even though we deserve death, God, even though we don't deserve your grace, we don't deserve your mercy, Father, you give it to us freely and we thank you for that. But Father, we know it cost you a great price. And I pray that today, God, that we would come before you and we would confess whatever we have, God, that we would omit the junk in our lives. Father, for those of us that have fallen greatly or in the midst of a fall, God, I pray that you would allow us to see that there's still redemption that there's still a second chance. Father, for those of us that are making poor choices, small choices along uh, in our lives, Father, I pray that you would help us to see those choices and then to stop those today, to confess them over to you, God, to ask you for forgiveness and then to move on. God, thank you for your redemption. Thank you that you love us and that you offer us grace. It's in Jesus' name, amen.